I think it's time that I tell you the truth about something. To say that I love Florida would be an understatement. I love, or am interested in, everything about this state, with almost no exception. The exception, the dreaded exception, lies in our sports teams. Outside of hockey, where I have been a lifelong Orlando Solar Bears fan and a recent supporter of the Tampa Bay Lightning, I am not a fan of our local teams. I'm not a Rays fan, or a Marlins fan, or a Bucks, Jaguars, Dolphins, Heat, or Magic fan. It's hard to admit it, but I really need to be honest with you. I am a Yankees fan. I have been my whole life. My father hung a Derek Jeter poster over my bed when I was a toddler. My mother was raised on Yankees baseball. I really had no choice. If you like me a little less now, I completely understand, but I'm no bandwagon fan. Being a Yankees fan is in my blood. I'm lucky, however, to be a Yankees fan and to live where I live, in Orlando, because there is ample opportunity to see them right here, in our state. They are in the same division as the Tampa Bay Rays, so it's just a 90-minute drive to get to see my team in person at Tropicana Field. My whole family has been going to Tropicana Field, for better or for worse, since I was a kid. Almost every year. But we don't just go to Tropicana Field. We also make the pilgrimage to George M. Steinbrenner Field. Steinbrenner Field feels out of place. It's only a hop, skip, and a jump from Raymond James Stadium home to the Buccaneers. Further across the bay in St. Petersburg, Tropicana Field rises like a circus tent. Steinbrenner stands alone. It is an open-air field with a huge glass building attached to the back and a notable team name painted on the windows. The New York Yankees. In this part of Florida, everything you see related to sports is Tampa. The Tampa Bay Lightning, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Tampa Bay Rays. While the Rays and the Bucks aren't the most popular teams, the Lightning have had a fantastic couple of seasons over the past few years, including leading their division currently by almost 20 points. Their success has reignited the city's passion for sports, and yet, with all of this Tampa love, the Yankees have a foothold right smack dab in the middle of their territory. My father has been pulling me out of class to go see the Yankees here my entire life. One time famously, I told a teacher that I was leaving class because I had to go to a wedding in Tampa. I did not know that weddings do not happen on weekdays. It is a beautiful stadium, always clean and open air with delicious food and insane Yankees fans. For baseball fans like myself, it's the most comforting feeling to be at a good old fashioned baseball game. For Yankees fans, Steinbrenner Field is like a home away from home, but it's not alone. The Phillies and the Blue Jays have stadiums further north in Clearwater and Dunedin respectively, the Braves are out near Disney, the Tigers are in Lakeland, the Mets are in Port St. Lucie. All told, 15 teams, half of the MLB, have additional stadiums in the state of Florida. Like some unusual safe harbor, all across the state, out-of-state baseball teams practice every spring for the forthcoming MLB season. It is truly amazing that spring training even returned to the Sunshine State. See, back in the day, the Washington Nationals were the first team to train here. And over 130 years ago, it seemed like baseball in Florida was cursed. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. This week, the Grapefruit League, the cursed history, and the economy of America's pastime. Baseball had existed since the 1840s, but the league now known as Major League Baseball didn't come to be until 1876. There were eight teams back then. Boston, Chicago, Cincinnati, Hartford, Louisville, 
New York, Philadelphia, and St. Louis. Over the next dozen or so years, teams came and went playing for a season or two before disappearing into obscurity again. It was a great way to boost the economy of a city, and town after town joined the fray. One such town was Washington, D.C. It's hard to tell exactly how many times the Washington Nationals existed, honestly. Washington, D.C. had just under a dozen teams over a period of 30 years leading up to the turn of the century. Five of those teams were called the Washington Nationals, but they weren't the same teams, not even the same organization, and they're not the same organization as the present-day Washington Nationals that have been in the MLB since 2005. For many, the historic Washington Nationals were a laughingstock. All of the teams, but no team was more of a laughingstock than the Washington Nationals of the late 1880s. This team made their comeback in 1886 and played for four consecutive seasons until disbanding in 1889. Over those four seasons, they won 163 games, but lost 337 games, losing over twice as many games as had been won. They primarily played out of Swampoodle Grounds, a small stadium built in the middle of the Irish immigrant neighborhood of Swampoodle. From your view in the bleachers, you could see the dome of the Capitol building. The team was painfully unremarkable for their entire four-season career. They were in last place every year, except for their 1887 season, in which they finished seventh which is just one spot above last place. The following year in 1888, the Washington Nationals decided to train further south in a different swamp from their own. The losers of the National League, the Washington Nationals, came to Jacksonville, Florida. They trained for three weeks and then finished with 48 wins and 86 losses. They finished 37 and a half games out of first place. The Washington Nationals had, year after year, of painful seasons, and their season that started in Jacksonville was no different, and yet, they blamed Florida for their failings and did not return to train. In their final year, 1889, their record was even worse with 41 wins and 83 losses. The team soon disbanded, for now, and it would take over a decade for spring training to return. By the time it did, it was 1903, the century had turned, and the athletics weren't doing much better. But they brought with them their own star pitcher, a man named Rube Waddell. Rube was 26 at the time and was a left-handed pitcher who was proving to be very successful with this team. Their manager was named Connie Mack, a man who was a catcher back in the 1880s with the Nationals when they trained in Florida, so he had some familiarity. Their pitcher Rube was an unusual man, and some reports say that he never fully matured mentally. In Florida, he found the perfect place to get into wild misadventures and would often go missing as he enjoyed the splendor of the Sunshine State. Some stories of Rube include a disastrous love affair, a hijacking of a Jacksonville parade, and a wrestling match with an alligator that began when Rube drove headfirst into a lagoon in search of the beast. The Athletics had a losing season and their manager blamed it on Florida, yet again. Another decade passed. Rube himself died in 1914 after catching pneumonia. He fell ill due to exposure to floodwaters after saving civilians in two separate floods in the town of Hickman, Kentucky. He died at the age of 37 from tuberculosis. I know that isn't Florida related, but there are just some stories you can't ignore. Now, it's 1913. No one knew it yet, but Florida was on the edge of the land boom that would shape the rest of our history. The 1920s would bring millions to the state as well as a massive population boom that would create the trend of growth that lasts to the present. 
The idea of spring training baseball in our state completely makes sense. Training usually starts in late February or early March, when much of the Northeast is still blanketed in snow, or at least still freezing. Florida was not only warm and notably drier in the winter, but it was also home to many northern tourists anyway. The fans of these teams. They'd make the trip down south in the winters to avoid the bitter climate, and now they can watch their hometown team and still be on vacation. In 1913, our entire population was less than a million, and the land was ripe with opportunity. That's when the Chicago Cubs came to Tampa. They had a terrible season beforehand, and maybe they wanted a fresh start, just like all the teams that had come before. The mayor of Tampa, D.B. McKay, offered to cover travel expenses, and the team found a home in Plant Field, right near Hillsborough Bay, connected to the historic Tampa Bay Hotel. Across the bay in St. Petersburg, a man named Al Lang was vying to bring a team to this beautiful town. He saw a lot of prosperity and knew that Major League Baseball could really invigorate the economy. Al Lang went to his hometown team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, but the management saw little benefit in the tiny village down south. Then came the St. Louis Browns, who agreed to the travel expense coverage and agreed to come train in St. Petersburg. So now there were two teams. One in Tampa, the Cubs, and one in St. Petersburg, the Browns. A year later in 1914, Connie Mack and his athletics returned to Jacksonville, and the St. Louis Cardinals came to St. Augustine. The Philadelphia Phillies replaced the Browns in 1915 and went on to win the National League pennant that season. It was all set now. Florida was the place to be. And the Grapefruit League was born. Over the following decades, the Grapefruit League became a mainstay of Major League Baseball. The Yankees came down in the 20s, bringing their name recognition and Babe Ruth. Now, quote, 10 of the 16 Major League teams trained in Florida, unquote. World War II briefly halted spring training in Florida, but the Dodgers changed the game when they made their own field, Dodgertown, in Vero Beach. Now teams were making spring training bases of operation in these towns. The next few decades saw major production of stadiums as old temporary ones were demolished and new permanent ones were put in their place. Many complained that this lost the sort of up-close charm, but others stated that this accessibility was the big gain. People could come watch baseball here, all spring, all over the state. Fifteen teams play here on a yearly basis. Well, it's baseball, and it's really the kickoff for spring training um, in Florida. And obviously, it's always an exciting team. You know, whether you're a player, a, a coach, a manager, probably most important fan, right? Uh, because you start to dream about what your team's going to do during the course of the season. And That's from WPTV News in West Palm Beach. And that was Joe Girardi, former manager of my New York Yankees. And he's right. This is an incredibly exciting time. As a lifelong baseball fan, the thrill of knowing your teams are getting ready to get back to the game is unreal. But we have a privilege as baseball fans who live in Florida, of being one of the only spots in the country that can savor spring training baseball. The other spot is Arizona. Spring training baseball has been present in Arizona since the 1940s, but their first spring training season was in 1929 with the Detroit Tigers. But Arizona had some stiff competition. Their neighbors with the dry heat and sunny climate, California and lots of training went further west instead of staying with them. However, starting in the late 40s, the Cactus League grew and grew. The Grapefruit League had existed for three decades longer than the Cactus League up to that point, but by the mid-2000s, the Cactus League fully caught up and split the MLB down the middle, with 15 of their own teams training in Arizona. 
While the idea of the Cactus League and the Grapefruit League being in competition doesn't really make sense, as they're all the same league, the MLB, the impact on the economy is really where the competition lies. Florida's reliance on sporting is not immediately apparent, but losing it would be crippling. One report from 2017 reveals just how crucial sports tourism is to Florida's economy. Tourism is Florida's leading industry. It is the largest tourism industry in the country. And 50% of out-of-state tourism in 2017 came from visiting sporting events. $57.4 billion in total sales were generated in 2017, and 580,000 jobs relied on the industry. 16 million people came from out-of-state for sporting events. All of those numbers come from the Florida Sports Foundation, a quote, not-for-profit corporation serving as the state's lead sports development and promotional organization, end quote. They research sport tourism, advocate for spending in order to support sport tourism, and promote leisure sport industries. And there's the twist about those numbers. Leisure sport industries. 16 million out-of-state visitors is thrilling, but that number includes those who come for fishing which is 1.5 million, those who come for wildlife viewing, which is 1.2 million, and of course, those who come for golf, which is 4.6 million. Professional sports only make up 2.4 million out-of-state tourists. But that doesn't erase spring training's impact. The 2018 spring training season brought in $687.1 million, 584 million of which came right from fan spending. Their numbers show 1.5 million fans coming to games and 7,000 jobs being created. At the end of the season, 80% of attendees polled said that they'd return the following year. And the highest attended stadium throughout the season? Well, that would be George M. Steinbrenner Field, smack dab in the middle of Tampa with an average of almost 10,000 fans per game. For Yankees fans in Florida, Steinbrenner Field is an oasis. The same for Orioles fans, for Red Sox fans. Twins, Mets, Phillies, Pirates, Cardinals. So many families have moved to Florida over the past several decades from various cultural backgrounds, and a connection with a team is something that's passed down through the generations. Florida is turning decades-old traditions into new memories, new cultural touchstones, and new economic impacts. Even if baseball isn't your sport, and even if it isn't the biggest piece of our economy, the idea that Florida is a melting pot of different pieces of American culture reflects really well in spring training. It is an amazing privilege to have this sport that means so much to so many families this close to us and 15 different teams. I can't wait to go for my first game this year. Not everything has to be about how much money it's making or how important it is to the specific culture of the state. Sometimes a really cool thing can happen in Florida that just is cool and amazing and important to people. And that's what spring training baseball is. As for the season itself, the first spring training game was supposed to be yesterday in Mesa, Arizona between the Seattle Mariners and the Oakland Athletics. The game, however, was delayed after it was rained out, which means that the first day of spring training baseball for this season is today. And the first game in Florida will be at 1.05 p.m. between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Philadelphia Phillies. It'll be in the Charlotte Sports Park in Port Charlotte, right here in the Sunshine State.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Spring training is something that has been important to me my entire life, and I was so excited to finally tell this one. And you know what's interesting? This was actually an episode topic that had been pitched to me by a listener. If you have an idea like that, a topic that you are passionate and excited about related to Florida, you can reach me at Wait 5 Minutes Podcast on Instagram or email me at Wait 5 Minutes Podcast at gmail.com. The links to those will be in the description below. All of the songs used in this episode are from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles for those in the description as well, along with all of the sources used in the research. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Reviews and ratings really help a tiny show like mine grow, and it really, really means a lot to me. I love telling these stories because I love the things that people say to me after they listen to the episodes. As for next week, I'm doing some research on a really interesting news story that is happening out of Miramar, Florida. A company is trying to build an oil well in a protected part of the Everglades. The city of Miramar is fighting it, but a state court just approved its construction. Now, I'll be doing a lot of research on that. You'll definitely hear part one of it next week. There may be a second part down the line because this is a developing story and I want to catch it while it's fresh. So keep an eye out for that next Friday. If you haven't listened to Tallahassee Tuesday, a new one came up this past Tuesday that covers several of the bills that are coming up in the Florida legislature, which convenes for the first time on March 5th. All right, I will let you go now. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have an amazing Friday, fantastic weekend. Be good to yourself, be good to each other, and please drink more water. I'll see you next Friday.